When people ask you what happened here, tell them the North remembers. Tell them winter came for House Frey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chan, and I haven't read most of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson, and I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. What we do here on this podcast is we recap every episode of the television show Game of Thrones, uh, and we do not spoil anything from future week's episodes that includes anything from book knowledge, that includes anything from the next time on preview on HBO. Uh, and this week we're going to be talking about Season 7 of Game of Thrones, Episode 1, entitled Dragonstone, uh, written by Weiss and Benioff, directed by Jeremy Podeswa, I believe is how you pronounce it. In mm-hmm. any case, um, find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can also email us, find us on Twitter and Facebook at A Cast of Kings. Uh, email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Uh, And we will be looking forward to discussing your emails in the weeks to come. This is our first episode of the season, though. Uh, So we're going to dive straight into the show pretty quickly. But before that, I want to make a couple of announcements. Firstly, uh, you may notice that I am not my usual vivacious (laughs) self today. Uh, Where's your sparkle, Dave Chen? (laughs) That is because I am recovering from the flu. Like, literally, if you could see me right now, I, I have, like, my whole lower half of my body is, like, wrapped in a blanket with Aww. a uh, heating pad on me to, like, so I don't shiver. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so I've, I've had a very rough couple of days health-wise. Um, but uh, pressing on to, to uh, do this podcast with you, Joanna. Uh, so I'm here for you guys. I'm here for you guys. Here to talk about Season 7, Episode 1, Dragonstone. Uh, second thing I wanted to announce is, uh, you know, Jonah, I was reading this, uh, you know, I was on Facebook reading this article called Why Game of Thrones is Bigger Than the Oscars and the Super Bowl. Mm. Uh, This is written by Peter Kafka for Recode.net. And uh, I was uh, enjoying this article about how big the Game of Thrones industry is when suddenly I saw my co-host on a cast of Kings was name-checked prominently in this piece. Uh, they write here, Vanity Fair's Joanna Robinson, one of the best and best read Thrones recappers, spends every Sunday night watching the show on two screens. Uh, you are, you are one of the best and best read Uh, recappers, Joanna. I, I mean, that's, some of that's subjective, but, uh. I think that is objective truth. I read it in Recode, so it must be the case. Must be true. Uh, but no, I, I, I think it's, it's remarkable, you know, that, uh, you have risen to the height of Thrones recap, man. And, and I, I think I'll just say that as, as someone who's, you know, observes the industry, I feel like the recap industry uh, in terms of TV or video, I should say, podcasts, online, uh, written recaps, has uh, just exploded this year. You know, like, it, it was, it's, always, it's kind of been a t- steadily growing, you know, in the last few years. But I feel like this year, it's just everywhere. You know, New York Times and, at, like, every, everywhere I look, there's some YouTube, there's some kind of uh, Thrones recap going on. Um, but it's remarkable to have been a part of that industry as it's grown, and of course to see uh, the rise of John Robinson. So, uh, 
just just, uh, just wanted everyone who's listening to know that they're in the presence of recap royalty. Uh, uh, they've already stopped listening. They're like, this <laughs> as is we disgusting. Dive, <laughs> as we dive into uh, this week's episode of Game of Thrones. So, uh, this episode, season seven, seven, episode one, Dragonstone, began with a cold open, right? Not something mm-hmm. we usually see in Game of Thrones. And uh, it was a cold open featuring Walder Frey. Uh, and, of course, the minute I understood barely what was going on, I started freaking out. Did you? Because, well, because it, one of two things is happening. Either it was a, it was a flashback, flashback right, yeah. with Walder Frey or uh, Arya had taken Walder Frey's place. Those were basically the only two possibilities, right? Um, and if it was going to be a flashback, then it was probably going to be pretty interesting because they would probably have shown you some different angle or some different perspective on it that would reveal something. But it becomes obvious pretty quickly that it is, in fact, a, uh, a uh, you know, uh, Arya has impersonated Walder Frey and is pulling off a Gus Fring style mass assassination <laughs> of the Frey clan. Um, <laughs> So, it, what did you think of this scene, Joanna? Like, did this get you amped up for the show, or, or uh, did you feel like, hey, they already kind of made that point at the end of the last season when Arya murdered Walter Frey? Uh, well, I feel like you're leading the witness. Um, I I agree. Uh, if, in, if if that's what you're looking for, that oh. it's like a sl- a slight repeat of the end of of last year. Um, what I thought was interesting is in the you know HBO Go always has this sort of behind the scenes of the episode interview with Weiss and Benioff, and they said they were going to um, put this later in the episode, and they decided to move it up to a cold open, which they they've done a cold open a couple times, but they decided to move it up to a cold open because they liked David Bradley's performance so much. David Bradley, who plays Walter Frey, uh, or in this case Arya pretending to be Walder Frey and um and I think if it had come later in the episode I think it would have been it felt would have felt more of a retread but since this almost felt like part of right. the previously it was like part on two of that scene almost yeah yeah, yeah. um I, I liked it yeah, yeah absolutely. No, I, was, I wasn't leading I was just curious I presented you two I, options you know I was curious which one you, you little calm a little calm b yeah. and I I did I thought um it's funny when I when I was watching that scene I was remembering um, there's this scene. I don't know how familiar you are with the Harry Potter films. You might have heard them. Little Indies, Harry Potter. Um, In the Deathly Hallows, I think it's part one. It might be part two. There's a scene where Emma Watson's character, Hermione, takes Polyjuice Potion to turn into Bellatrix Lestrange, played by Helena Bonham Carter. So we get to watch Helena Bonham Carter be Emma Watson, being her character, you know, being Hermione, being a Bellatrix was strange and it is one of the like high points of comedy of the Harry Potter franchise as far as I'm concerned I think it's so funny um and there's a few other like polyjuice moments like that and so there is potential here for like high comedy obviously this scene is not going to go for like super slapstick but there were little touches I thought that David Bradley used uh that were really good like once you understood what was going on um you know he says something like yes cheer (laughs) yeah exactly I remember it's so good I watched that scene a couple times so I did remember seeing that yeah kind of this sarcastic yeah, uh, you know the sarcasm that Arya as Walder Frey was using, uh, but yeah, I, I thought overall it was very effective. I mean, I think some of the dialogue he says is a bit stilted when he says like, you know, I've gathered all of you Frey men here, you know, all of you guys who were at the red wedding, like is very expository, like explaining who exactly these people were. 
sure. um, but other than that, super badass. Uh, and you know, Ari taking off the mask and tell them the North remembers. Tell them Winter came for House Prey. Uh, very effective. The walking out, the the score swelling into the opening credits and the theme. Uh, it's great. It's 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 awesome uh, and delivers some real visceral thrills. I will say this, uh, and this is hopefully the last I'll speak of this issue uh, until you know next episode. <laughs> but I do still feel a little bit of disappointment at uh, how Arya's arc was handled with regards to you know uh, uh, when she was being trained, you know all that stuff with the waif. I felt like, looking back on it, it doesn't feel like this is like this grand moment that she arrived at. I feel like that plotline wasn't handled super well. Um, And and it it, it didn't feel triumphant or tragic in the way that I think this moment was supposed to feel, taking into account the totality of her story. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think, um, you know, (laughs) it's funny. I want, you know... I watched this episode in Los Angeles at the at the premiere, which means I saw it on the big screen and I saw it in a room full of people, which I've, that's never how I've watched Game of Thrones before. Right. And so I now have a better sense of this episode, like what an excited crowd would think of something, like when they cheered and stuff like that. And there was just a monstrous cheer right. when Arya walked out of the Frey Hall. And so I feel like for plenty of people, this did sort of hit home. Uh, in a in a way that you know Sansa walking away from Ramsay getting his face, face eaten by dogs did for people last season. Um, as I said last season, like these women, uh, these Stark women turning into these sort of forces for vengeance um, d- doesn't entirely thrill me. Sure, there's a satisfaction of seeing her, yeah, there, you know, there, avenge her like family. There is a base visceral satisfaction from seeing that. Right. Yeah, yeah, but but like this is not what I want for Arya, and I think you know not to not to spoil the next thing we're about to talk about, but I think the episode does a good job of sort of tempering it a little bit. Um, like she doesn't in the hall, she doesn't kill any of the women of the young women, right? right? Not just the young wife who she gives sort of her message to, but also the the women serving the wine are all spared. You know, it's just these men who were involved in the red wedding to begin with. And so, um, you know, she's not killing indiscriminately. It yeah, feels like to me. I'm not sure if I'm uh, communicating myself clearly. I think like, uh, I'm less concerned by Arya becoming this force of vengeance. Um, and like all the moral implications of that. And I'm more, uh, disappointed by the fact that all that Bravo stuff and Jack and Hagar, uh, I, I just felt like the show didn't give us a really good understanding of how she gained these abilities and what the implications are of her using them and all that stuff. I agree. No, I mean, I heard you before oh. and I, I agree with you. Um, I just think I, I don't want to dwell too much on uh, season five and six Aria since they were such bummers. And I'm really looking forward to hopefully her having better things to do. It's sort of like when we emerge from a Daenerys season, I kind of want to like a bad Daenerys season. I kind of want to like yeah. move into potentially what could be good. But <laughs> what's true is that Aria basically dropped out of assassin training at the house of black and white. Right. So it feels like the, though we probably won't see it in the show, it feels like there should be a consequence for her using these like ancient and mystical arts for her own gain, which is uh, against what the faceless men are for, 
So she's using the these skills that she acquired, um, which, you know, the whole philosophy of the House of Black and White is you are no one. It's not about your personal vengeance or motivation. Right. It's about what you've been hired to do. So she's breaking all the rules uh, by, you know, murdering her own enemies here. And um, I, I, if the show were consistent, even with its season five thesis, where she was blinded for doing that, right. because that, hap- that happens in the books. Uh, she would be punished somehow for this, yeah. but I have a feeling that that's not going to happen. Right. I don't. I don't know, but I feel like the 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 show is just going to treat it like Arya went to boarding school. She picked up some cool tricks. Uh, they're going to help her in the Great War to come. Right. And and I just you know I, I know uh, we probably have a lot of new listeners today for this episode. And right out, out of the gate, you know, I'm already like nitpicking this stuff, but. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like uh, something that's more complex where, oh, something like maybe she tries to do it, but something goes wrong because she's not trained well, you know, or uh, later on, like the consequences of her actions come to haunt her uh, for, for reasons beyond just their moral standing. Like, obviously, her killing all these people morally, there's something upsetting about that, but like something about the training itself that she received and the tricks that she received. Um, anyway. No, I mean, it, it yeah. made no sense. Jack and Hagar, when she left, was like, a girl is finally no one. And I was like, that's the exact opposite of what's true. Right? Yeah. right? Like, um, and I'm, I'm just I'm just not mad about it. Sure. I just I just like see it, but I'm not mad about it, I fair, guess, because like, um, but I, I think you're right that if we were in, in George R. R. Martin's world, there would be consequences for using skills that you haven't, uh, you know, really earned. But uh, the other thing I will say is that there is a larger theory tied to the books. Uh, and I don't believe this is a spoiler that like Jack and Hagar tried to draft Arya into the house of black and white for a larger sort of spiritual purpose. And we, they talk a lot in this episode about sort of um, the Lord be it Rolor or the many faced God of the house of black and white or whoever has, has a plan for you. He's not done with you yet. Um, and a lot of those plans seem to be about arming the realms of men to face down uh, the night King. Right. And so if Arya went, to the, if the reason in the books and in the show that Arya w- was drawn to the House of Black and White in the first place is so she could learn skills, so that she could go fight for mankind, um, then maybe we can forgive that. You know, she's not just like grad, uh, dropping out of assassin school and then going to like live an ordinary life. She's going to fight a war. Essentially, uh, we presume if she survives that long. Right. Uh- I, I think I just am bringing it up more because I didn't want to let the show off the hook because oh, it delivered no, should so, you? because it delivered so well with the thrills at the opening of this episode. You know, it's just like okay, uh, any show, in my opinion, can deliver a scene where someone kills a lot of evil people and thrill audiences with it. It takes an extraordinary show to have uh, an excellent build-up to that where like, you understand all the, the stuff that went into that and the moral implications and the methodological implications. Anyway, um, that being said, Game of Thrones is a show that has often done something that complex and that uh, well-executed. I just didn't think the Arya backstory was, was one of those instances. But let's move on. Before we get to the other Arya stuff, let's talk about the opening credits. A uh, couple of changes to the opening credits this year, Joanna. One of them is we got to see Old Town, right? For the yeah. first time, 
And then also, I think this is the first time that we've seen the opening credits uh, where you don't see any section from Essos in the opening credits. Is that right? Oh, ever? Yeah, I don't think I don't think the Essos is in the opening credits. Okay. No, it's not. But I don't. It's not. But like, I don't know that we've never. I couldn't confidently say hmm. that we've never not seen Essos in the opening credits. I'm pretty sure we have because, like, generally, uh, there's a there's Daenerys free episodes. Right, but even with Daenerys free episodes, I think we still see Essos in the opening credits. But hey, uh, if you have uh, yes. knowledge of this, <laughs> I'm sure we'll get like 50 tweets about this now. Yeah. uh, Write into us at acastofkings at gmail.com. The the change I was looking for that I didn't see was um, I was looking for the Baratheon sigil on King's Landing to maybe be replaced by like either a Lannister lion or something else. Some new sigil that belonged to Cersei since she's like does not really associate herself with House Baratheon. But the stag is still there. So uh, nothing's changed in King's Landing. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about the rest of the Arya storyline this episode. Joanna Robinson, if I were to ask you, uh, let's say Ed Sheeran belonged to a house in Game of Thrones, what would you, <laughs> what would be your first conclusion of which house he belonged to? Would it be Lannisters? Because that's what we found out this week. He's definitely a Hufflepuff. Wait, no, that's, a, that's the wrong show. Uh, I would not uh, put him loyal to House Lannister. Ed Sheeran's a knight. Well, he's... He's a nice, like, soft boy. So I would put him in, like, down in High Garden with the Tyrells, probably. Mm, yeah, I, that's actually probably the optimal choice. Although maybe some people would associate Lannister's treachery uh, and capitalistic tendencies with Sheeran's all, oh, you know, wow. persona. Oh, um, wow. I know nothing about <laughs> Sheeran, apparently. Well, I, I guess here's what I learned, Joanna, after watching this episode of game of thrones uh people hate ed sheeran <laughs> that's kind of what i yeah like i've seen that. so much naysaying of ed sheeran uh and it's been fascinating to observe i think i think you know i think it has less to do with ed sheeran though it has something to do with ed sheeran and more to do with the fact that this was like this is game of thrones clunkiest i mean i actually didn't i didn't hate it but like this is this is by far their sort of most overt and clunkiest musical cameo that they've ever done because right. we've had um, members of Snow Patrol and Coldplay uh, and Cigaros has been yeah Cigaros and um, Monsters of Men like uh, Mastodon like all these all these various bands have been there but like deep in the background or like you know Cigaros performing at the at Joffrey's wedding like that just. If you didn't know Sigurosa didn't like stick out, but like everyone know, even if you don't know his music, almost everyone knows who Ed Sheeran is. And I knew he was in this episode, so like you you hear him singing off screen as Arya is writing, and I just started laughing because I was like, "Oh, here we go! Here comes Ed Sheeran!" Well, because he's, and, singing, uh, he's singing with like a pop voice that comes out of like the 21st century. I don't know. I I thought it sounded kind of magically, but I have heard that that uh, criticism from like uh, you're a musician. I've heard it from other musicians, so I guess I have to concede to you guys. But it sounded kind of like old timey magically to me. But um, Uh, I I guess I'm wrong. Having sung in a magical choir before, I I don't. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna high road (laughs) me on magical. That's right. Okay. All right. Stand up. Well, do you know Joanna? You may be one of the best read. uh, No, uh, no. But I am one of the most listened to ex magical singers. (laughs) Um, No, but uh, well, do you know what song he's singing? uh, No, please do tell. 
Uh, the song is called, well, here's a couple things I, I liked. When she, she walks up, she goes, I've never heard that song before. He goes, yeah, it's new. I thought that was really funny because we've heard The Bear and the Main Fair, <laughs> The Reigns of Castamere, and a little bit The Dornishman's Wife, like over and over and over and over again. So to add a new song to the sort of Thrones set list, I thought was, was great. Uh, this song is called Hands of Gold. And in the books, it's written by um, a bard who's trying to blackmail Tyrion. And it's actually about Shay, um, who Tyrion at the t- you know, from many books ago, when Tyrion at the time was trying to keep hidden King's Landing. Um, and then later, when Tyrion murders Shay in the books, he murders her with his father's necklace which is made of linked uh, hands of gold uh, linked chain mm. and so he thinks of the lyrics the song lyrics as he's choking shade to death so that's the association books readers have i don't think uh this is meant to have anything to do with Tyrion in the show in the context of the show it's just lannister men singing lannister song but uh you know it could either be about Tyrion or hands of gold um, are always cold. Like that could also be about Jamie. So like, if you want to read too deeply into it, which of course I always would love to do, um, it seems like a kind of anti Lannister song. And given the way these Lannister boys feel about serving, um, I think it's pretty, it's pretty well suited for them. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one of, you know, to, to put a button on this Ed Sheeran conversation, I think, for a lot of people, including myself, the problem with it is that it completely rips you out of the reality of the show. Yeah. Uh, if you know who Ed Sheeran is, it's just like, oh, Ed Sheeran is here. You, you, you're, not, you're not immersed in the reality of the situation that she's eat, you know, eating uh, in a potentially dangerous situation with these Lannister men. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to be kind of forgiving of it, and I promise I'll be back to my more hard-ass version of myself next week. But I'm, I, I don't know why I'm so soft on this episode. Maybe because they, like, wind and dine me. But, like... I'm inclined to be kind of forgiving of this because this is like a special gift to Maisie Williams, the actress who plays Arya, who's a huge Ed Sheeran fan, and Weiss and Benia for trying to get Ed Sheeran on the show for like years as a surprise and a gift for her. So this, I agree, it's it's bad TV making because you should not put such an overt famous cameo in Game of, Game of Freaking Thrones. But as like a gift to this actress who they've known since she was a little girl, I think it's a little bit charming. Uh, I agree. Uh, Agreed. I also I also really liked this scene um, because once again I think it reinforces my earlier point about Arya. You know, Arya sits down with these men. She's scanning all the weapons uh, either as a defensive tactic or also like, oh, these are Lannister men. I should kill them, right? Like right. the Lannisters are my enemy. I should kill them. And then she uh, sees their humanity and she sees that they're just boys like she is a girl and like um, miss their families and actually aren't very fond of Cersei and all this other stuff. And she's just sort of relaxes into it. And um, I really liked that because, you know, if she were just like this angel of vengeance, she would have killed them regardless. So uh, I liked that point of this scene, the Ed Sheeran, I'm inclined to overlook, but I understand why a lot of people are angry. Fair enough. Uh, I agree. It was a lovely scene that helped to humanize uh, these characters and made you understand that uh, war is more complex than good and evil. And uh, the men who are doing the fighting and the killing often, you know, uh, aren't necessarily evil. They're often just people who are doing their jobs. Uh, and that's something that we also saw with Jon Snow's storyline. Uh, but I will say that what is unforgivable 
beyond the edge, <laughs> what is beyond the Ed Sheeran cameo is uh, the whole hey why are you going into King's Landing oh I'm going to kill the queen ha 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 it's just a joke aka something we've seen done a thousand times in TV shows and films before uh, come on Game of Thrones do better anyway uh, all right let's move on so we go to Bran and the Wall this week. Uh, so here in the show notes, Jonah, you've written uh, this is a brand vision where we see the army of dead uh, marching mm-hmm. on green grass. I did not interpret that as a vision when I first saw it. Uh, it's, like there's this amazing, like long continuous shot where you see all the uh, the Night King and the Whites and, and uh, giants like all walking towards the camera. Is that what we're talking about, right? Yeah. So that is a vision versus like actuality in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, what indicates to you that it's a vision? Is it because there are it's, uh, you right here in the show notes? They're on green grass. Is that why? Well, a couple things yeah. that yes, but also you cut immediately after that. You cut to Bran coming out of the vision. Mm. You cut to Bran's face, and his eyes go from white to regular. Gotcha. Because he was like in vision mode. I didn't know if he was warging unrelatedly or not. Oh, <laughs> <Right. laughs> I was just. Brand is just working unrelatedly. Um, uh, no, and I I believe people disagree with me, um, and sometimes I'm wrong and sometimes I'm not. But uh, I believe, at least on the big screen and also looking on my smaller screen, I saw this too. They're walking on green grass and they're bringing the winter with them as they walk. You can see the storm sort of swelling around them, and then when you get when the camera gets inside the cloud, you're in winter. Um, and John has described this before. John described this last season. He he says the Night King brings a storm with him. Um, and it's terrifying to see them on green grass because there is no green grass north of the wall. So I believe that this is a vision, Bran's vision, of the Night King and all his forces south of the wall. Uh, and way south of the wall if it's green grass because it's snowy at Winterfell. So they're south of Winterfell there is, is my interpretation. Um, the other question mark about that vision is that, you know, it zooms in on a giant's face. And is, I it, don't wanna, is it one one or is it just another giant, right? I don't want to be giantists. Like not all giants look the same, of yeah. course. But uh, that that – a zombified giant only has one eye. Now, as many people, you could stop furiously writing your emails because I realized that in Battle of the Bastards last year, the arrow shot one one in the right eye, and this giant has his left eye out. Mm. I I agree with all of you, but it's a one eyed giant. Like I I just I don't know. I'm planting my flag on a few things that this is a vision of the future, which we know Bran can have because he envisioned Cersei's wildfire last season before it happened. Um, that there, that the army of the dead are way South of the wall and that they have passed Winterfell and resurrected the corpse of one, one. Um, I'm ready to be wrong about things, but that's where I'm putting, putting my flag. Mm. All right. Um, so then Bran and Mira arrive at the wall. And they meet uh, Ed Tollert. Is that correct? Yeah, Lord Commander uh, Ed Tollert. Lord Commander Ed, uh, and uh, he uh, like Ed asks Bran to prove like who he is, uh, that he's a Stark. And Bran tells Ed he knows he was at Hardhome and uh, the Fist of the First Men. And then you know Ed accepts him and they go inside. You know I don't know that that does that really prove. That does that not qualify a... you as Bran Stark at all. No. Yeah, 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 but. 
Uh, Prove, pr- show me your ID. Cool. I know everything about you. Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. I guess you can come in anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, uh, maybe, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I'm at a loss. You're exactly correct on that one. You know, I don't know that that's proof of his identity, but I do think this is a very interesting development because Bran is, it seems, uh, the only person that knows of Jon Snow's true heritage which, as we found out last season, uh, Jon Snow is the son of Lyanna Stark and Rhaegar Targaryen. Uh, is that right? Rhaegar Targaryen? Is that right? Well, the show has not officially confirmed Rhaegar Targaryen within the world of the show. Right. But, uh, but it, yeah. So, so, so <laughs> I, I'm kind of curious like, what Bran is going to do with that information. Because if yeah. that information gets out... Uh, it could do a lot to undermine John's situation right now, right? I think what we need to know is what does Bran know and when did he know it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, it seems, talking to Ed, it seems like Bran knows everything, right? Like, he just rattled off Ed's backstory. So if he's bothered to, like, look into the life of Ed Tullert, then, like, doesn't he know everything, uh, Three-Eyed Raven style. How dare you imply that Ed Tollard is not one of the biggest <laughs> well, you, characters. You're, I mean, he is the Lord Commander, so That's I should right. show some respect. But right. um, but uh, Bran saw a baby being born. I don't know that he knows it's John. He might, but the reason we, the audience, know it's John most of all is uh, because the camera cut from... The baby's uh, face to Kit Harrington's face. That's right. right? But, but was that showing? Was that the camera cutting, or was that showing us Brand's sight as well, Joanna? <laughs> I I don't know. But we. So I, I feel like uh, Brand probably knows this, right. but I, I'm not going to say for certain he does know it. But you're right that Brand is a traveling time bomb of exposition. He's got a lot of Westerosi history in his head, uh, which should come in handy uh, in any number of circumstances. Indeed, indeed. So uh, do we do we want to talk about the ramifications of Bran going south of the wall? Please. Uh, what uh, do you what do you think they are? Well, so last season, you remember that Bran's in, in the weirwood tree with three eyed Raven. And then he sort of g- goes into like one of his visions and the Night King in the vision puts his mark on Bran Stark. Right. And because he put his mark on Bran Stark, that destroyed the protection around the weirwood tree. And that's how the Night King was able to invade the Weirwood Tree and kill Hodor and kill Summer and all this other stuff. Um, so the the mark on Bran is what broke the protections. Last season, when Benjen and Mira and Bran were looking at the wall, Benjen talked about these magical protections that had been built into the wall that protected the wall. Like no, uh, you know night king type creature could like and benjen can't pass through the wall because of the magical protections that have been woven into them um and that you know there's a theory uh seems pretty solid that those protections are similar to the protection of the weirwood tree and then if brand passes through with that mark on him he has just broken the protective spells of the wall so, like, the 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 wall that has been there 8,000 years, I think it is, uh, protecting the realms of men against uh, White Walkers, uh, was perhaps just penetrated by Bran Stark. It feels like Bran is like a giant in a china shop. Uh, you know, like, first he <laughs> a, kills, a one-eyed giant a one-eyed in a china giant shop? In china, I mean, first he's killing, you know, he... Uh, 
not not only do Bran's actions lead to Hodor's death, but also inadvertently cause Hodor to be you know disabled uh, throughout his entire existence, and then you know now he might be uh, allowing White Walkers and such to go south of the Wall. Is what you're saying, right? So yep. So Bran Bran is really ruining everything. I think is uh, is what's going on. Yeah, well, you know, blame Bran. But the worst kid on the show since Ollie. But um, the the thing that I... I think you meant to think, say most impactful, but okay. Uh, the thing that I want to note about this is if it's true, if, if Bran going through that door with Mira and Ed and the other Night's Watchmen just destroyed 8,000 years of magical protection. Isn't it kind of interesting that the show just showed it without any kind of right. sense of drama? It's a very, like... It's a mundane thing. It's just like, oh, let's pull Bran on his sledge again. We've seen this a million times. Here he goes, you know, like, no Especially, ominous cracking in the wall or anything like right. that. Right, well, we had this incredible moment at the end of the episode at Dragonstone, you know, that's all about this person arriving at this place uh, and how consequential that is. And for this moment to be just be tossed tossed off like that would be uh, a pretty interesting choice. Yeah. But it, it, is that just a, that's just a theory though, right, Joanna? I mean, is it is it confirmed what you said or? It's a pretty strong theory. <laughs> I will say I would say the language around the magical protections of the railroad tree and the language around the magical protections of the wall are very similar. And the fact that they had Benjen like sort of spell out the rule like some of the rules of the wall right as they approached it last season makes me feel like they're trying to lay track mm. for that mm. i could be wrong once again it's happened before it'll happen again but that's that's uh that's a theory that i buy into for sure let's talk about old town and the citadel uh we see samuel tarley there uh he had just arrived towards the end of last season and now he's got himself a job at the Citadel. He has the respect of his peers. Everything seems to be going great for Sam. Except not really because he's <laughs> doing the most menial tasks possible. Uh, there's this montage that seems to be quite polarizing from the oh, really? scene. I, I, I thought it was absolutely brilliant, uh, both because of how it visually tied in um, food and fecal matter. And it's like, really, aren't they just both the same thing? <laughs> um, but also the way it's cut, like every single cut uh, or every few cuts, it's like a day of Sam's life, right? And you just understand like the length of time that's passed and how much of it was spent doing these disgusting tasks. Uh, and it's just a, re- a montage, is a really effective way of showing that, in my opinion. What do you think? I think even Rocky had a montage. But um, the other <laughs> the other thing I want to say, uh, I loved it. It's only if only because it's very different for Game of Thrones. And I think that's kind of cool. I thought um last year's opening of the finale uh set to the track Light of the Seven, which has become one of the most iconic pieces of music from Game of Thrones. Um I thought that was something really different for them. And I thought that was bold and interesting. And so I think it's kind of cool that they are, are experimenting with form this late in the game. Um, I guess, you know, they're kind of like hashtag too big to fail at this point. And so they're just sort of like, let's do a fun, quirky, choppy feces montage. Yeah. Um, I thought it was what's, great. what's kind of funny is that when, um, you know, when we were at Con of Thrones in Nashville a couple weeks ago, this Game of Thrones convention, um, I hosted a bunch of 
what we called the great debates panels. And one of the great debates topics that we did was worst job in Westeros and a leading contender that almost won was poop guy. <laughs> it was like various poop, you know, like dragons and like all other thing. Like it just kept coming back to that. And so when this opened, I saw Sam there. I was like, Oh, Sam's a poop guy. There we go. Um, but he's also a book guy and an autopsy guy. So it's fun times at old town. Yeah. It was, it was interesting that Sam didn't seem to adjust to the repulsiveness of the feces uh, over time, you know, like, even towards the end of that montage, he was still grossed out by it. Where I, I, I would think that if you're doing that stuff every day, it would get better over time. You know, I would imagine anyway. Um, but uh, too bad for Sam. In any case, he does an autopsy, like you said. I thought the design of this room where the autopsy happened was super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this scale that's used for weighing the organs, but also there's these gigantic mirrors uh, that are used to reflect light onto the body because there's no strong light source because uh, there's no electricity in Westeros. Oh, yeah. Um, so I thought that was just like a really cool kind of production design element. Um, but uh, this and this conversation with Archmaester Ebros or Ebros, mm-hmm. uh, played by Jim Broadbent, was really interesting. Uh, it Honestly, it reminded me, uh, I, I felt like there's some climate change allegories in here. You, you get that vibe from it where, you know, uh, That's funny. We have we have a fun um, article up on VanityFair.com, which I know you're not intentionally pimping. That's about climate change and Game of Thrones. We interviewed a bunch of climate change scientists about Game of Thrones. It's really fun. Um, and like why there would be a long winter, even though this is a fantasy. Um, and then one of my bosses today was like, uh, because of global warming, summer is coming, right? It's not winter is coming. Summer is coming. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Some climate change denier. Uh Verbiage is that what you're talking about? Yeah, or not even climate, uh, not even verbiage, but more like attitude. Like, hey, um, if you think if you think of the entirety of human history, you know, the collapse of Rome, the bubonic plague. Like, there were probably many times in the history of mankind where people thought everything was just going to come to an end, mm-hmm. and it never has thus far. And so, there are some people who feel like hey, uh, guys, climate change, this is the real deal. Like, we got to be vigilant about this. There was that article, I think it was in The Atlantic, about how Earth oh, is yeah. really hot really soon, right? Yeah. Um, so Summer's coming. Yeah, there's some people who think like, hey, let's get on this because we're all going to die. And there's other people who probably have Jim Broadbent's attitude that's like, hey, um, we've thought we were going to die as a species many times before and we never have. So maybe just cool it with the rhetoric there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Literally. Um, Well, and that's the thing is like if you buy into my theory or it's not my theory, but um, the theory that Bran was seeing a vision of the future where the White Walkers are south of the wall, that means the wall has like fallen or at least been breached, you know, and and what uh, Ebros or Ebros, I don't actually don't know how to pronounce it, but like uh, what he keeps banging on about over and over or at least a couple times is like the wall has always been there. And it will always remain. <laughs> it's like that's that's his truth that he's anchored his right. life philosophy to is that there's a wall that is protecting us against even if your boogeymen do exist, there's a wall there to protect us. It's always protected us. And what we may have just seen earlier in the episode is that wall being breached. So um, I thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, he he basically tells Sam, take it easy 
don't worry about it. Like, I know you, th- you know, the wall's there. It's going to protect us. Sam is unswayed by this. He breaks into the restricted area. Um, somehow he knows exactly what books to go for in that area. I don't know what the categorization system is in this place, but he takes some books out and uh, takes it. He to took his... the one that said just a dragon glass on it. Yes. He's like, oh, this is yeah, what I want. Dragon glass volume. <laughs> uh, so he takes it to his living quarters uh, with where, where Gilly is apparently. Why? Uh, why are Gilly and the baby allowed there when last season they were like no women and children allowed in the Citadel? Remember? <laughs> so, so I remember that, and um, I thought that was just in the Citadel, like the Citadel being a building versus like Old Town itself, which is where they seem to be residing. Like the no. establishing shot seemed like it was in the area outside of the building. Where Sam and Gilly are? Yes. You think Sam's living in town? You think he hauled those stolen library books out of the Citadel, yes. like smuggled them under his tunic out of the Citadel and into town? Uh, you know, Jonah, you, you say that very skeptically, but that would not be the only hand-wavy thing that happened this episode. <laughs> uh, okay. Specifically, I'm referring to Euron Greyjoy's fleet of ships. <laughs> but but uh, anyway, regardless of how Okay, <laughs> Dave, you might be able to high-road me when it comes to madrigals, but what do you know about shipbuilding? <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'm completely incompetent in that regard. But somehow, Gilly's living there comfortably. Okay. And Sam is there too, and they're chilling and reading. He's reading about Dragonglass, and he discovers that Dragonstone is built on this huge cache of Dragonglass, um, which is going to become important because I think Jon Snow is going to want access to as much Dragonglass as possible. So he says, like, oh, we need to figure out a way to let Jon know. We don't know if he's going to actually figure out a way to get that information to Jon, but it seems to be like a next step for this thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's most of the Sam plotline at the Citadel, with one exception. Uh, in addition to feeding people in the mess hall, he also apparently takes food to people who are, I guess... In quarantine? In quarantine, in the hospital, in prison, like whatever this area is. Uh, and it seems pretty clear that one of those people is Sir Jorah, Right who looks like the grayscale has advanced considerably since the last time we saw him. Sir Jorah Blackenarm. Would you say the grayscale has advanced, like maybe the time it took for the grayscale to overtake his arm would be time enough to build a thousand ships? Um, you no. were, you're on gray. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, I, I, so we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right. But uh, anyway, it was nice to see Sir Jorah. And it was definitely a moment where I gasped because we had no idea what was going to happen to him, right? Um, but Or at least I didn't. So to see him in this episode, and uh, I don't know what exactly he's hoping for. You know, maybe that the Citadel will discover some kind of cure. Um, is that the assumption? I think, or? Yeah, I think if you're, like, if you had a disease that was incurable, um, you would go to, like, what, Johns Hopkins or something like that. You would right. go to the center of knowledge around this sort of thing. And that's what the Citadel is, is like the, the center of knowledge in, in Westeros. So, um, yeah, I think he, I don't know. I hope he came to the right place. I have no idea, but, um, that's where I would go for sure. Totally. All right. Well, let's move on with the rest of this episode, Joanna. Uh, A few more locations we got to cover, uh, with the rest of Season 7, Episode 1, Dragonstone, Winterfell. We got some action at Winterfell uh, with John and Sansa. Uh, John and Sansa gather the Northern Lords, a scene very similar to uh, how things wrapped up Winterfell last season. Um, 
And John, as you say here, makes Dragon Glass an agenda item. Uh, he also suggests <laughs> that women fight, and he sends Tormund and the Wildlings to Eastwatch uh, by the sea. So those are the main things that happen. Of course, Sansa also contradicts him uh, and says, "Hey, uh, the House of Umber, the Umbers, and the Karstarks, like they should be punished. They should have their their homes taken from them and their castles given to loyal men." Uh, and John decides to be lenient on them. Uh, he has Alice and Ned kneel to him and swear loyalty. Uh, Alice and Ned are both, they look extremely young uh, and not. They're so cute. Not exactly like trained warriors. Um, but yeah, and then Sansa and John kind of argue about what the best way to, pro- what, what the best way to proceed was. Uh, now, you know, Jenna, my, my opinion is, hey, Sansa, you want to disagree with John? Totally cool. Why don't you guys hash that stuff out before you're at the meeting? You know, like absolutely. But as some, I agree with you. Like, I think it's fine for Sansa to have an opinion. I think it's fine for her to disagree with John. I think in this case she was in the wrong, but that doesn't mean she doesn't get to voice her opinion. But I think she was wrong, and I think also think it was kind of cold for her to talk about like kicking Alice and Ned out of their homes in winter, right in front of little Alice and Ned. Um, that was a little that was a little frosty, Sansa. Not to but mention if- this is like the second time in like three episodes that Sansa has undermined John. the other time being at the Battle of the Bastards when she didn't tell him about uh, uh, yeah. the soldiers of the Vale coming in at the last second, right? Right. So That old can of worms. Um, I'm still mad at Sansa about that, but uh, like I said, I, I think it, it would be great for them to be co-leaders of the North. I'm really into that because I do think Sansa has a lot to offer, and later when she's talking to him, she makes a lot of good points. She says you have to be smarter than Ned and Rob. That's true. Like She has a lot of good points to offer. Uh, she tells him that he's a good leader and that he commands respect. That's also true. I think his leniency is a good uh, you know, within reason is a good policy. He like in the winter time, as he says, I think it's time to gather all your forces. It's not the time to hash out like uh, squabbles. It's time to band together. So I, I think all of that is true. But what I will lay at John, like if if Sansa should have talked to John before the meeting, I agree. But did John give her an opportunity? Did John say, "Hey, I'm going to announce that you know the Umbers and the Karstarks get to keep." you know, last hearth and, and car hold, you know, at the meeting today. And Sansa would be like, oh, well, this is why I think you shouldn't. And John's like, cool, but this is why I'm going to. And then she'd go, uh, well, I don't agree, but okay. And then they go into the meeting. But John didn't give her that opportunity, presumably. I agree with you, though. She should not have undermined him in front of the whole room. But but if they, if she is meant to have a say in what, you know, how things go, then John needs to give her that opportunity to talk to him, right? Yeah. Why, why do you think uh, Sansa was wrong in this situation? Did you, well, I I don't think that it... Like, Alice and Ned are the new heads of their household. That's why they were there. Not just because they're the cutest, but they're the heads of their household. So, like, Leanna Mormont, who's a tiny child, they're they're in charge. And that moment there where John offers them leniency, like he did with the Wildlings... Um, before, I think that's a surefire way to win loyalty. 
from from your people. You know, like we see how Tormund and the Wildlings will fight for Jon Snow because Jon Snow fought for them. And that's, I think, what we see. And it was an incredibly popular decision. Like in the room, it's not like the room was pissed that Jon let the Karstarks and the Embers stay in their homes. Everyone was like, yeah, this is great. This is so, look how cute those kids are. This is great. You know, so I think that was the right call. Um, and, and, you know, the reason that the Karstarks were fighting with, you know, fighting alongside Ramsey Bolton in the first place is because, uh, Rob Stark was harsh on, um, the Karstarks yeah. and be, and beheaded one. So that harshness from John and that, and, you know, I wouldn't call Ned harsh, but I would call him like, um, you know, it, he was a letter of the law man, right? Um, that, that I think got them into trouble. And I think John showing more humanity has in the past made him a better leader. Um, and I think he's right here, but that that's not to say that Sansa isn't right about a lot of things. Cause she is. Right. Um, so, so something else happens at Winterfell and that is Baelish still trying to get in good with Sansa. Uh, last season, Baelish said that he wanted to rule the iron throne with Sansa at his side. Uh, was basically shot down, is not only shot down this episode, but like Sansa's throwing shade at him real hard. Uh, and yeah. I, He's taking it. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like, you know, Sansa, reject Baelish. That's fine. But, you know, don't be spiteful about it because I feel like in the past when Starks have not been kind to Baelish, he hasn't responded well to that. You know what I'm saying? But that's different because that's Ned Stark, right? who he hated his whole life. The Sansa is like the reincarnation of Catelyn Stark as far as he's concerned. I think she knows how much he wants her in all his creepy ways. And I think she knows, I think she knows her position there. So she has a room to be shitty to him. I think he actually kind of likes it <laughs> to be honest with you. Hmm. Um, not, my but reading, maybe, not my reading of the scene, but okay. Fair enough. All right. uh, also in the notes here, you've written Sansa wig game. What oh, yeah, we of? need to talk about Sansa's wig. For the first time in the entire show's history, Sophie Turner is wearing a wig this season. Uh, if you listen to our season one rewatch, you know I have issues with, <laughs> with wigs sometimes. Um, and I just, I am not fond of the of the wig that they put her in in this scene. Um, why, why um, what do you not like about the wig? It just sits very high. It's like her hair is super long. It's It's blonde now, like, Sophie Turner's hair is long and blonde. That means you have to shove it up under something. And um, so it just, if you look at it, she's got like this huge, like her head is big in the back because that's where all of, all of her hair is shoved. Right. And um, it's just sitting really high on her head. And I just, I think it looks, it's hard because we're so used to seeing her own natural hair. I mean, dyed red, but her own hair on her head to replace that with a wig is more jarring than like Amelia Clark, who we've always seen in that silver wig, you know? So, right. Uh, and I just needed to do a wig report. That's all. No, that, that's cool. And actually this brings up another point that, um, uh, a colleague of mine, Angie Han, uh, tweeted about, I don't know if you saw this. It was actually picked up by Buzzfeed. Uh, she tweeted something like, I can't find the exact tweet, but she said something like, my favorite subplot in Game of Thrones is the makeup people gradually not caring that Peter Dinklage isn't, isn't blonde. 
Um, and if you, you see, there's like a screenshot of Peter Dinklage in season one and Peter Dinklage in season five, and his hair color is quite different, right? Uh, is it is it um, is it from the pilot? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's, it's late season one. Late season okay. one. Um, but uh, you know, it did stri- it does strike me that 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 is the case. Uh, that they no longer care that he's blonde. And actually, on that note. Uh, I don't think they care that Jamie's blonde either. Yeah, that's very true. He cut his hair off. They cut his hair off and never bothered to like let it grow back out or dye it. Which, um, which, wouldn't, which wouldn't be a problem except for the fact that uh, a character, a major character lost their life on the show in season one because of people's hair color. Do you know what I'm saying? So it feels like, hey, that's, a, that's some continuity that you might want to nail down. <laughs> what do you think? Um, I just, I, I heard Weiss and Benioff say once that they like, uh, I think they made Tyrion's hair. I mean, Tyrion's hair is even, I see, um, Angie's tweet now the, Tyrion's hair was even worse in, um, the pilot. They right. said they like made it Eminem blonde is how they put it. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, just over time that they've like, they're like, this looks better on Peter Dinklage. So this is what we're going to do. And they don't care. Jamie, I do miss his long blonde hair, especially since he's supposed to be Cersei's twin. And it's a whole like thing about how they look alike. Uh, yeah. Go- golden headed Lannisters. That's supposed to be an important plot point. You're right. I'm not going to disagree with you. I just, I think we might have bigger fish to pry, fry. No, like I- Sansa's wig. <laughs> <laughs> We might have bigger fish to fry, <laughs> says the person who brings up the wig game every week. Uh, okay, fair, fair point, Joanna. Anyway, uh, all right. So, anything else you want to say about this? There's a nice little Tormund Brienne scene, but Tormund's heading off, right? He's he's going away, right? So yeah. So the Tormund. This Brienne... might be. What if this is the only Tormund and Brienne scene we get Oof, this season? That'd suck. That People would... are going to be bummed. Yeah. Um. I don't know that he's leaving this episode. He'll probably leave next episode. So maybe we'll get one more, one more scene between them. But uh, we also see Brienne. Brienne, by the way, has a new like. It looks to me like a new set of armor, if I'm remembering correctly, which I think looks great on her. And she's sparring with Pod, who. Uh, doesn't seem to be progressing too far in his lessons, but he's trying. Poor, poor he's so. Trying. He's trying. Uh, all right. Well, a couple of other plot lines this week. Firstly, King's Landing. Uh, Cersei and Jamie are at King's Landing. Uh, there's a giant map being painted on the ground, and Cersei walks around and describes the state of play with who's their ally and who's their enemy. Um, yeah, I, wa- I watched a little... Uh, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched a little bit of... Um, the the like sort of live reaction that you posted uh, with your lovely fiance afterwards, and I think she called it like the map of exposition or something yes. like. Or <laughs> painted some convenient exposition on the floor of King's Landing, uh, and it's not that I disagree with her at all. I don't, but I think we've remember how when the show started, they used to give us exposition via like sex scenes. <laughs> right, right. The show is never. The show has had trouble with exposition in the past, and uh, I, you know I think I think uh, your fiance is very right that um, the map is here to help orient us in the world, and so that you know uh, Cersei can lay out a visual sort of, of of the enemy surrounding them. But I think it's a beautiful way to do it. You know, I yeah, think it's. I, I, I had I had zero problems with it, and I actually thought it was kind of hilarious because I just imagine a Benioff and Weiss completely drunk with power. And thinking to themselves, how can we do this exposition scene? Oh, well, let's just have like a scale model map in, you know, 
in the room and like just like we did with Stannis, you know? Uh, and one of them saying like, no, someone must be painting this exquisite mural on the floor uh, <laughs> that we're going to use for this one episode for five minutes and never again. Like, I would bet money that there's a huge possibility we'll never see that map again in the show. Do you think like, let's, let's paint the scene, right? Benioff is like, but Dan Weiss, that's 25% of our budget. And Dan Weiss is like, it's worth it. <laughs> exactly. Paint me the map. All right. I don't know why I picked Dan to be the V. Be. <laughs> exactly. uh, I so- <laughs> mean, I, I just thought it's like, hey, we've had exposition with sex. We've had it with scale model maps on tables. Why not just do like a full-blown, like massive, you know, 20 feet by 20 feet painting on the floor? Uh, it was, I, I, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I enjoyed it because I think, you know, um, there are a lot of characters in play. There's a lot of alliances in play, and having her sum it up, I think that is actually useful. I was uh, grateful for it. So I did quite enjoy that scene, and uh, the dynamic between Cersei and Jamie is, let's just say, tense. Brought. Um, you know, Cersei uh, only wants to talk about how they're going to dominate and survive, and Jamie's like, what about the uh, our son who killed himself? <laughs> You know, like, can we talk about that a little bit? And she's like, speaking of dead sons, what about our brother who killed one of my sons and you let him go? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's a lot of a lot of Lannister, sticky Lannister family dynamics flying fast and furious. Not a great partnership. Uh, but, you know, Cersei does or, you know, there there is this question posed of uh, with all their children dead, who is going to inherit the Iron Throne when they're gone? Uh, and, of course, that's when we get Euron Greyjoy. But before we get to that, any other thoughts on this uh, scene between Jaime and Cersei? Um, uh, well, quick personal anecdote, which is that when I went to the Game of Thrones premiere, and I promise I will not be talking about this all season, but I never go to bonkers things like this. So when I went to the premiere, the after party, the dance floor was a painted map of Westeros and it was pretty cool. Like nobody was dancing on it, but that was even cooler because you could just like gaze lovingly at the map because it looked amazing. It was that, that painted map that we see on the floor of, of uh, the red keep was on the dance floor. So did you meet any of the actors from the show at the premiere or I could have, but I don't like to do that. I I don't like, I don't like to do that because, um, because you want to have the freedom to completely shred them. No. Next. Not that you're going to, but you want to be able to, right? Um, I mean, yeah, sure. It keeps me pure. But also, you know, in a party setting when there are famous people there, and there were, um, I don't like to do that because I always feel like that's you're annoying someone who's just trying to have right. a, like be at a party, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. Very considerate, Jonah. Um, but uh, I assume... I did get very, very close to Ian Glenn, who plays Sir Jorah Mormont. I didn't touch him per our restraining order, but I did get close. No, I'm just kidding. There's no restraining yeah, order. I, I was at a I was at a party once with Nikolai Koster Waldau, uh, and like I really wanted to like take a picture with him, but then like, and I had an opportunity, but I didn't. And then by the time I really wanted to again, he was just being consistently swarmed by people. So, you know, uh, that being said, but you do you do have a photo with young young Hodor, so that's, that's correct. There's I will, that. I will treasure that forever. Uh, <laughs> anyway, all right. So uh, I, I, I thought the interaction between Cersei and Jamie was tragic, but also funny when he he's like pretty brutally honest about uh, the state of their alliances, which is like they're pretty sad, right? At this moment, when when she says, "I'm the queen of the seven kingdoms," and he goes, three at best, <laughs> yeah, three kingdoms at best," pretty funny. That's pretty solid. Yeah. Pretty solid, Jamie. Jamie's got jokes. Yeah. 
So then uh, they, she alludes to like needing to marry someone to form an alliance, and Euron Greyjoy shows up. Um, so Euron has apparently built a massive fleet, right? Okay, but not only that, he gave himself an entire makeover <laughs> of clothing, of eyeliner, and a personality infusion as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole it's a whole new Euron without the recasting. Mm, incredible. And yeah, they used they used to need to do a recasting for something that big. Yeah. Um <laughs> no. um, new Dario like changing up your Dario's, that's the old Game of Thrones. New Game right. of Thrones just slap some leather and some eyeliner on it. It's fine. I think the only thing that is uh uh somewhat, you know hand wavy and potentially bothersome is even in this episode, Euron gives this speech that's like like you don't want the Iron Islands, it's just a bunch of rocks. It's like, well where did you get all the wood to build your freaking fleet, man? You know, like apparently it's not super hospitable to vegetation. Uh anyway. He said last season when he won the Iron Island election. Yeah. He said, go back to your homes, cut, I don't know if he said cut down your trees, like gather every bit of lumber. They talked about lumber last season. It's no need to go over the lumber again. Um, yeah, Euron built a thousand ships, including a really, really nice one for himself that's fancier than all the other ones. Yeah, that ship looked pretty badass, to be honest. Called Silence. Um, but uh, we don't know how much time has passed, do we? Uh, yeah. Many, many months, I would assume. <laughs> I mean, w- at the end of last season, we went from a scene where Varys and Olena and the Sand Snakes are talking in Dorne, cut to all of House Drell, all of House Martell, and Varys joining Daenerys' fleet, sailing away from Slaver's Bay, Dragon's Bay. Right. So, like, a lot of time passed between that. You know, so so right. we don't. And, and know we should what's also going point on. out that, like, although the events of the show are presented as though they're all happening at the same time, all the plot lines are evolving at different rates, right? So, I mean, I I, I wouldn't want to be the infographic person or whatever who tries to track it because they kind of are evolving at the same time because people keep referring to things that are happening elsewhere. I mean, the spread of information in Westeros has gotten a lot faster. You know, people yeah. just know know things now that like. It feels like they would have to wait for a raven to find out before, but they just know things. They know the state of affairs. the 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 cloud should be the the sky should be clouded with ravens at all times, <laughs> given how fast uh, information is going back and forth. Well, on that note, um, Cersei said that she knew that Tyrion had been ma- named Hand of the Queen for Daenerys. And my my fiance, when she's watching this, she she just was stunned that Cersei would know this. Like, why would Cersei know this? There's no reason she would know this unless there was a traitor in Daenerys's midst. Uh, do you have any opinion on that, or do you think it's just like hand waving show me- plot mechanics? I think last season we saw Kyburn um, take over Varys's little flock of birds, his little spies. And Cersei says, I don't just want them in King's Landing. I want them in the north. I want them in the east. I want them in Essos. Like, I want them everywhere. She has this whole speech about send your spies everywhere. So Cersei knowing feels less questionable to me because she's using Varys-esque tactics. But, like, you know, everyone at Winterfell always know. I mean, I guess make it ravens. It's fine. But is there like a newspaper, like, right. or or what's going on? But but I I don't know the that Westeros I would. Times. 
Yeah, the Westeros Times. But I don't know that I would guess that there's a traitor in Daenerys' myths because it's like it would be common knowledge in Marine that Tyrion's hand of the queen, right? Right. It's not a secret that he's hand of the queen. Right. So I mean, he's wearing it on, on his lapel and everything. Yeah, so. he's got a pin. It's yeah. a whole thing. <laughs> if you hadn't crushed us, I wouldn't have gone into exile. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be the greatest captain of the 14 seas. If not the most humble. You're not humble. You're the queen of a great nation. You don't care about the Iron Islands. They're nothing but rocks and bird shit, man. And a lot of very unattractive people. The Iron Fleet, on the other hand, has something else entirely. It's the greatest armada Westeros has ever seen. With the Iron Fleet, you own the seas. You can defeat the invaders in the east and the pretenders in the north and south. What do you want in return? Ever since I was a little boy, I wanted to grow up and marry the most beautiful woman in the world. So here I am, with a thousand ships and two good hands. So anyway, Euron and Jamie trade barbs and Euron proposes to Cersei. Uh, I, I, I thought Euron, like you said, got a personality infusion. I thought he was very funny, kind yeah. of anachronistic in the scene, um, but in a way that I quite enjoyed. And uh, he proposes to Cersei. And even though we've just seen Cersei say that uh, she wants to form alliances by potentially marrying, um, she says no because uh, she's a good negotiator. And a good negotiator knows you never accept the first offer. Um, so he says okay well in that case I have to bring you a gift of incredible uh, value Uh, and he leaves to go find this gift a lot of uh, questions as to what this gift could be do you have a theory about it I think probably Tyrion's head is the front runner there what do you think Mm, I can't talk about it I see okay okay well then I will look forward to finding out with you and by with you I mean uh, as you have it confirmed uh, on screen. <laughs> uh, so anyway, fun scene with Euron and Cersei. Two other locations this episode. One of them is uh, the Hound riding with Thoros of Myr and Beric Dondarrion. They find the house from season four, uh, which is in the previously on. So did you see the at the premiere? Did they show the previously on, Joanna? Yes. Uh, so in the, in the previously on, they showed this house that uh, the Hound and Arya were in season four where they robbed this guy of all of his silver. Uh, and you know, I, I think, think Arya would object, object to you saying they. She she would right, say she, that was not me. <laughs> yeah. Um. And anyway, they go back to this house. So so what are they doing right now? Hound with Thoros and Beric. Like, are they heading towards the wall? Are like they're heading north? Right? Is that right? Yeah, I think they're kind of letting a uh, Rolor decide where they go. But um, yeah, they said they were. They said, you know, I think I believe Beric Dondarrion said to the Hound last season. I, I think the phrase he uses: "Cold winds are blowing in the north. Uh, we're going up there to fight, and we could use like a strong man like you." Right. So that's why the Hound is with them. They're going north. I don't know that they have. I don't know that they're like headed to Winterfell or headed to the Wall. Like I don't know that they have a specific plan. 
But uh, when the hound looks into the flames, you know, Thoros asks him to look in the flames because Thoros is like, you know, is a red priest, like Melisandre is a red priestess. He asks the hound to look into the flames. The hound, who is famously afraid of fire, uh, does. And he says he sees a castle where the wall meets the sea, the ocean. Uh, and that is East Watch by the Sea, which is where Torment is going. So I, I would right now guess that they're going to East Watch by the Sea. Right, right. Um and I thought the conversation was kind of interesting. You know, it's it's interesting in the way the show touches upon religion when Beric says, you know, I don't know why I'm still alive, but I am. And so he's going to try to figure it out. Um, I think it's it's kind of the message. Of, it, 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 what's, what's interesting about the show is that the people who are religious are not infallible. You know, Melisandre, who's out there somewhere, we didn't see her this episode, um, but she was wrong, right? Mm. Killed Shireen. Um, but she was also right. Like, and it, it strikes me that like, it strikes me as similar to faith in a lot of like modern faith in a lot of ways. And that, um, often people receive signs that reinforce their deeply held beliefs. And often, uh, they don't receive signs when they need them the most. And, uh, I, I just think it's a pretty interesting, complex way of portraying religion th- that this show does. Um, but what I also, I, like, I absolutely love this scene. This is probably actually like highlight of the show for me. Like, the hound is MVP of the episode. Um, Me too. When he buries Absolutely. the and the daughter. Um, you know, Joanna, we had this thing um, when we did our uh, Con of Thrones panel that I was going to say like, oh, hey, what about the uh, SS abandoned plot lines? It was this image that appeared online about like all these abandoned plot lines that like Game of Thrones had introduced and never followed up on. And what we discovered when we looked at this, it's like, uh, it's basically shows Gendry's boat and it shows all these characters in the boat that, uh, we didn't know what happened to them, but what, what ended up happening, like that graphic was made in season four or something. And since then we've followed up on all those characters. So Beric Bondarian was there, Thoros of Mir, uh, Asha was there, you know, all these characters, we now know what happened to them. And, uh, and I, I think a, that's just extraordinary, but B, like plot lines like this, like this with the hound and this family that he robbed, you know, three seasons ago, it really goes a lot towards building this world where like these characters exist. They exist beyond the confines of the frame. Like they, things continue happening to them after you visit them on the show. And uh, beyond that, the fact that the hound has changed so profoundly from being like a uh, sociopathic, you know, killer in the early seasons to, you know, maybe the, his time with Ian McShane really did change him. Uh, and otherwise he wouldn't, you know, like earlier version of the hound wouldn't give a shit about these people. Yeah. But, uh, the fact that he felt the need to kind of say a little eulogy for them, however, uh, <laughs> however half hearted it was, I mean, uh, it just brought home this idea that these characters change over time and in profound ways. We asked the father to judge us with mercy. We asked the mother to... Fuck it, I don't remember the rest. I'm sorry you're dead. You deserve better. Both of you. What did you think of the scene? Yeah, I just completely loved it. Not just the not just the 
grave digging, um, which is a nice nod to the books where the hound was living incognito as a grave digger. But, um, but the scene before where he's talking to Beric and Thoris about, um, sort of cosmic justice and, um, why, why would the Lord of Light save Beric Dondarrion and not, you know, he, he mentions good men losing their heads. That's Ned Stark. He mentioned men swinging from the rafters. I think that's, was his phrasing. And that's, that's Ian McShane's character, brother Ray, you know, so he's saying, I've seen good men die and stay dead. So why do some men come back? Like, where's the justice in that? Where's the fairness in that? What is the Lord of Light want? Um, or what does any God want? And that's, so profound and interesting. And, you know, one of the complaints I heard from, a, you know, I talked to a bunch of TV writers after the premiere, um, like Dan Feinberg from the Hollywood Reporter, Todd Vanderwolf, who writes for Vox, um, a couple others. And, and you know, they, they kept bringing up the notion of, of table setting, which we've talked about Um on, on this show before, but that, you know, that means, um, making sure all your players are in the right place for this thing that you're setting up. And, and their concern that they voiced was that not only this episode, but this entire season was going to be a lot of table setting for the big finale that is season eight. Um, and we're just going to be seeing a lot of players moving from point A to point B, uh, in, in, in taking their positions on the one hand, I'm sure that that's going to happen. And on, but on the other hand, that's exactly what's happening here with the Hound and Beric and Thoros. They need to get the Hound and Beric and Thoros north for whatever reason. But the show needs them north. And um, we could just watch them move from point A to point B. But instead, Weiss and Benioff have written this very touching, very profound interlude with, you know, put pause on... Arya murdering Freys and Cersei plotting things and sexy Greyjoy pirates and whatever you want for three men who are like grizzled and worn and tired and covered in snow talking about faith and God and justice and um, digging a grave in the middle of the night. Like that's, that's the game of Thrones that I fell in love with in the first place. And so that that's, this is far and away my favorite moment of the episode and, and made me hopeful that, in moving their pieces around the chessboard this season, um, you know, the, the Game of Thrones writing staff will continue to make this effort to make those movements feel as special and thematically resonant as possible. All right. I, we're in complete agreement. This is our, the best part of the episode. Yeah. Uh, and it's a pretty subtle part, you know. Um, but not to, not to harp on the... Well, I, I'm not even going to disparage anything. I'll just say, like... This moment means so much because of all that we've seen of the Hound coming up to this point. You know, mm-hmm. like it is an effective scene on its own, but it is given way more resonance because of everything that's come before. Um, so, wait, were you were you trying to refer back to the Arya thing? Yes, I was. But <laughs> is, see, I I think you're I think you're not. Well, here's what I'll say. Yep. I agree with you entirely about the House of Black and White. Entirely. However. The emotional resonance that comes through in that scene with Arya also has to do with um, us remembering season three and her watching her brother Rob get paraded around on a horse with his direwolf's head sewed onto it. Like, right, right. And her, you list, know, and her list of dudes that she, or, you know, list of Not just her list, killed. but like, but she, she experienced the Red Wedding more than Sansa, more than John, more than anyone else. She was there. She wasn't there in the room right. when they died, but she was there. And so 
and she was helpless to stop it. She was too late to stop it, and she was helpless to stop it. I mean, the same is true. If you look back at at this early Arya stuff of her traveling around Westeros, you know, in the company of various, like, protector figures, she was rather, you know, she had her needle, but she was rather helpless. Uh, there's a scene I was rewatching recently where Melisandre takes Gendry from the Brotherhood, and Arya can't stop her. There's nothing Arya could do. And I was watching, and I was like, Arya now would not have to put up with that shit. Arya now can take care of herself. And so that kind of stuff, I think, despite the fact that I agree with you that they bungled the House of Black and White stuff, this other Arya stuff, I think, does, like the Hound scene, not as well as the Hound scene, but does inform the emotional weight of that cold open. All right. Fair enough, Joanna. Uh, a, A solid defense. I accept. Um, all right. Final scene this episode. Uh, Daenerys, Varys, Tyrion, Missende, Grey Worm, they arrive at Dragonstone, which is where uh, Daenerys was born. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and not and where that, Stannis used to camp. Right. And it's also it's her f- first time since, you know, since she was born there, like back in Westeros, right, versus Essos, which is where she was before. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. Uh, and I thought the scene was great. Uh, this is a, a situation where you are relying on all your below-the-line talent, your location scouts, your production designer, your set builder, like all that stuff um, to craft this scene and make it as impactful as possible because there's no dialogue. And it would actually, in my opinion, be worse if there was dialogue. Like if she knelt down and was like, this is where I was born, the land of my forefather. You know, like if she <laughs> said some awful scene or, you know, like, said some awful dialogue. Uh-huh. Like it, it makes it so much more impactful that she doesn't say anything, but then you need all other elements of the show to be firing on all the cylinders. And in my opinion, they were. What did you think? Yeah. Um, uh, last premiere story hopefully ever before the premiere, uh, Dan Weiss, uh, you know, Weiss and Betty after giving a speech and Dan Weiss said, you know, uh, our production designer, Deb Riley, who's won multiple Emmys. Um, he's like, she, you know, she's done so much. And we, you know, we thought, we thought we had seen everything that she could do, but she has put together a, a location. So stunning this season, like our most stunning location yet, I think. And he's not talking about location scout because obviously it's a different job, production design, what she built. And, um, I agree with him. I think the Dragonstone, you know, when Stannis is a Dragonstone, the budget on Game of Thrones is much smaller. And so the, when Stannis is a Dragonstone, we were just inside, yeah, and it so was we like never kind of the throne room for some reason. <laughs> it was kind of cavernous, I guess. I mean, I I would buy that Stannis doesn't sit on a throne. Yeah, that Stannis doesn't seem like a throne kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, but we just saw the map room and like you know Salisa's weird place where she uh, had her stuff and um and and the jails and so we saw the cavernous interior and and this season they've really opened Dragonstone up. We're used to seeing Amelia Clark Daenerys in the Sun of Essos. So they just really opened it up, that a really impressive winding walled walkway that they have going up, the huge doors, that gorgeous beach with the rock formations, um, and then the throne room, her new throne, and everything. And then the, the, the good old map room where hopefully Daenerys will clean that table before she uses it because nope. Stannis and Melisandre definitely got down on it. Um, I thought, yeah, I thought it did look look amazing absolutely yeah and then she she ends by saying shall we begin you know Mm -hmm. which is kind of uh, a meta way of talking about this season of the show 
right? Um, so. Yeah, a, co- a couple things I want to say about this. One, when she got off the boat, I, I watched, I think I watched this episode four times. And the second to last time I watched it, I watched it with my roommate, who's a huge fan of the books. And when Daenerys got off the boat, my roommate was like, oh, don't do that, Kevin Costner and Prince of Thieves shit. Don't do it. Don't do it. And she did it. She got down on her knees and touched the sand. And she's like, oh, you did it. At least she didn't kiss it, right? Um, but um, well, at least she didn't say anything, too. Is what I'm saying, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, but but on that note, um, friend of the pod and and my Storm of Spoilers co-host Neil Miller was like, was a little disgruntled that Tyrion didn't have a single line of dialogue in this episode. Right. And um, I was wondering, like, is it cheaper if you if he doesn't say dialogue? You know what I mean? Like, do they? Oh, in terms of paying actors, pay him as much? I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but, but Weiss and Benioff did say in the sort of behind the episode look that. Um, they really wanted the whole thing to be silent. They're like, even Tyrion, who's the most loquacious of men, like a silent gray worm sort of goes up to Daenerys, tried to go up to Daenerys at one point, Miss Sandy holds him back because they just really want Daenerys to experience this whole thing for herself. So yeah, a, a big moment. Daenerys is in Westeros, man. Here we go. It's happening. This is, oh, someone, another friend of the podcast, Jesse Carp, was like, I feel like we're getting, we're finally getting everything that Dave Chen asked for like three seasons ago. When is Daenerys going to get to Westeros? When is Arya going to start killing people? Yes. Um, I so... only needed to wait three years. To get <laughs> three that. years. Yeah. There you go. But Here you go, was, buddy. But it was totally worth it. Uh, <laughs> overall thoughts on the episode. I thought this was a solid episode. I don't know that it's my favorite uh, you know, season premiere, but uh, I enjoyed every place we visited. Uh, I thought it set things up for the rest of the season really well. Uh, and introduced a lot of interesting plot threads. But yeah, so- solid episode of Game of Thrones. What do you think? What would you say is your favorite premiere? Can you think of one? Probably season one premiere, if I had to. Uh, yeah, sure. That's just a really awesome premiere episode. Um, but uh, yeah, what do you think? I yeah, I really really liked it. I definitely liked it much better than last season's premiere, where I was like still angry about the whole Jon Snow lie thing. Um, and I, I was really happy that this, you know, the ratings for this season premiere were the biggest Game of Thrones has had. Insane, like fifteen million or something like that. Something ridiculous. See, I read a couple different numbers. Yeah. The first number I read was like ten point something million, and then later I was seeing like sixteen million. So I don't know what to tell you, but huge. That is insane. Uh, that is like a absolutely massive, huge massive number. Yeah. Um. So, uh, and I'm gratified to see that that has nothing to do with, uh, like a stupid cliffhanger. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like, Ooh, tune in and find out if Jon Snow. So there wasn't like a major cliffhanger last season. And, um, I'm just, I was just getting really tired of cliffhangers on big shows and, uh, I'm glad that they didn't do one. And I'm glad that the ratings prove that you don't need one, um, in order to, you know, the Walking Dead has always been the biggest show, and Game of Thrones has always been second. But this might be the season that um, it eclipses it. So here we go. All right. Um, well, thanks for tuning into this week's A Cast of Kings. Uh, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, Joanna, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Um, I suggest you tune into Storm of Spoilers, my other podcast this year. Um, we are doing a spoiler-free section and a spoiler section this year just because the people ask for it. So if you want to hear us talking more about Game of Thrones, uh, you can find me at least over there. You can find me on VanityFair.com writing a lot about Game of Thrones. Or you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Find me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. And at DaveChen.net. Thanks for listening to A Cast of Kings. We'll see you next week.